I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. This episode of Live Wire is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving or cleaning, even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. And auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hello. Welcome to Tattoos and Things. What can I do for you two ladies, huh? Hi there. We'd love some tattoos. And maybe some things. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you've come to the right place. We've got both. Uh, what would you like? Huh? Well, that's the thing. We're not really sure. Yeah, can, can you suggest anything? Uh, let me guess. This is your first tattoo. Uh, yeah. Busted. <laughs> How'd you know? Just a hunch. Oh. Oh, uh, well, here are some books with photos of some of our most popular tattoos. Oh. Ooh. Ooh. Uh, um, do, do you have something delicate, like a, a small butterfly? Oh, how about something like this? Instead of a small butterfly, we make it a gigantic flaming dragon, spitting fire and dread upon a small Gaelic village. Okay. Um, Wowzers. <laughs> that sure is. That is a lot of fire. Yeah. Um, what about something simple like a rosebud? <gasps> yeah. Uh, all right, I got it. It's a samurai warrior with a traditional day show. And he's just slain about 20 or so guys. And he's sitting under a tree. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know if I see a rosebud. Well, if you peek behind him, see right there, a rose garden. Oh. oh. What's that all over him? Oh, well, well, that's the blood of the unrighteous, darling. Oh, uh, I see. Okay. Well, shoot! <laughs> that, that just seems pretty complicated. Yeah. Well, well I'm just spitballing here, ladies. Okay. Oh, oh, we know. How about something with a gecko? Oh, or a kitty cat. Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you what I can do. I can do a great, big, fearsome panther. And he's just batting about a gecko in his mighty paws. Moments before devouring it. Oh, oh dear. Uh, but what's, in, no, what's important is what he's thinking, eh? What he's thinking is, I never really knew my mum. <laughs> and what have I been doing all my life? Oh, I, I don't know. Um, oh, well, how about this? On, on page 15. Oh, what? Uh, this, this one here on the left? No, that's a topless woman with a mohawk giving the bird. <laughs> no, um, the one on the right... Oh, that, that's far too rough for the likes of you two birds. It's, it's... 
beautiful Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. It's Livewire, the radio show that only features people with facial tattoos. Tonight, Little House on the Prairie's superfan Wendy McClure, novelist Jim Lynch, and music from Black Prairie. That's tonight on Livewire Radio. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Courtney Hameister. And you also have comedy from Faces for Radio Theater to look forward to. Poet Scott Poole with What I Learned Tonight, wherein Scott sits in our audience and in just one hour, the time it takes a romance novelist to decide whether her hero smells cultishly musky or pirate-esque, he writes a poem that encompasses all the lessons he's learned during the show. And of course, music from our house band, The Mutton Chops. Thanks, Jim. As I mentioned earlier, later in the show, we are going to talk to Jim Lynch. He wrote a great political thriller called Truth Like the Sun. It jumps seamlessly back and forth between Seattle and 1962, the year of the World's Fair, and the creation of the Space Needle, and 40 years later when things have changed just a little bit. And we also have Wendy McClure with us. Wendy is a woman who loved the Little House on the Prairie book so much that she actually followed the pioneer trail of the Wilder family, and she spent uh, even a little bit of time in the replica of the Little House. Um, And I wouldn't go to those lengths because, A, I didn't love the books quite that much, and, um, B, I don't like to leave my house. But I, like her, uh, was a fan of the Little House books when I was a kid. And if you've never read the books or watched the TV show, which would have given you a completely unrealistic expectation about the availability of hair products and blow dryers in America in the 19th century, um, they were largely autobiographical novelizations of Laura Ingalls Wilder's life as she grew up and traveled with her family through the Midwest from around the 1870s through the 1890s. And since the publication of the first book in the series, Little House in the Big Woods in 1932, the books have been continually in print and have been translated into 40 languages. And the books were popular, I think, because Laura was full of moxie and she was relatable and the books made us all glad that we had indoor plumbing and that we didn't have to shoot and butcher our SpaghettiOs. (laughs) But the question is, how are the books doing now, right? Um, Because the world of YA, or young adult fiction, has actually grown significantly in the past 15 years, uh, which many publishers are attributing to what they call the Harry Potter effect. And that is that since 1998, kids and their parents have snapped up over 450 million copies of Harry Potter books. And since 2002, youth readership is back up to where it was before it started declining. Which is great, right? When did youth readership start declining, you ask? (laughs) 1982. When was MTV's first transmission? (laughs) August 1st, 1981. And I'm not saying that there's necessarily a connection, but as someone who was willing to sit through 20 viewings of John Cougar's Hurt So Good video (laughs) just to get to the one airing of Bow Wow Wow's I Want Candy, I can attest to the fact that the additional six hours a day I spent in front of the television may have cut into my reading time. (laughs) Little known fact, youngsters, the M in MTV originally stood for music. (laughs) Look it up. So 
We know that the readership is about the same as then, but the books are hugely different. So let's do a quick comparison between Little House on the Prairie and one of the biggest selling YA novels today, The Hunger Games. In Little House, Laura Ingalls Wilder travels through various Midwestern states with her family, doing everything they can to survive in very harsh conditions. Uh, Highlights include harvesting sap and making maple syrup, birthing a calf, hunting with her pa, and being taunted by bully Nellie Olson because her dress is too short. (laughs) Hunger Games, uh, 16-year-old Katniss Everdeen lives in a post-apocalyptic dystopia called Panem, where one teenage boy and girl from each of 12 districts are chosen to fight to the death in an outdoor arena until only one remains. Highlights include death by hatchet, death by scientifically engineered killer wasps, and death by giant mutant killer dogs. Those are different books. And as... As much as I am down with the world changing and I'm not likely to bemoan what the kids today enjoy, I will say that while I was trying to navigate the almost always humiliating and emotional landmine-filled world of middle school, I'm not sure that escaping to a world where kids my age are offered up for sacrifice and (laughs) summarily eviscerated would have been the best, most comforting escape for me. I was already being verbally eviscerated by Jennifer Childress for wearing the wrong kind of culottes. And that was, that was pretty brutal for me. So, and actually, but when I think about it, maybe that's part of the draw, right? Adolescence can be so brutal, so why not escape to an equally brutal world where you actually have to stab and shoot and punch and pile drive and roundhouse kick other kids in order to stay alive, right? Sounds sort of satisfying. Maybe Suzanne Collins should consider writing a grown-up version, Hunger Games Corporate Edition. (laughs) That being said, I still hope that kids keep reading the Little House books because while Laura wasn't the finely tuned marine-like killing machine that Katniss is, she should definitely still be counted as the badass with braids of her generation. So the story goes that Decemberist guitarist Chris Funk just wanted to play more square-necked dobro guitar, so he and bassist Nate Query decided to start an instrumental string band with fellow Decemberist Jenny Conley on accordion, Annalisa Tornfeld of the Woolwines on violin, and John Newfeld of DeLorean on guitar. The band released their first record, Feast of the Hunter's Moon, in 2010. But part of the band's vision has always been to be a backing band for singers, and to that end, they've just released their first limited edition vinyl EP on Sugar Hill Records with tracks from James Mercer of The Shins and Sally Ford of Sally Ford and the Sound Outside. It's called Singers Volume 1, Portland. And this year, they've also collaborated for the first time with Oregon Children's Theater on their adaptation of Matt Phelan's graphic novel, The Storm in the Barn. Playing a song from that show, please welcome Black Prairie.
Black Prairie. Nate, are you the one who has to talk to me? Nate Query. Yeah, we're trying to keep our lead singer our secret weapon. <laughs> this is Nate, Nate Query, the bass player for Black Prairie. And Chris Thank Funk you. looks like he might talk to me too. So, uh, so this, this song is from the score uh, for The Storm in the Barn. And it's the story of Jack Clark. He's a kid in Dust Bowl, Kansas in 1937. And I have to say, it seemed like there was a storm of brewing there at the end. Yeah, well, that was the Dust Storm song. Yeah, yeah. it was absolutely Good amazing. Good <laughs> Yeah. Um, so what actually happens during the course of this story to this kid? Well, so basically, Jack is the kind of kid who's sort of picked on and sort of at an age, like he's probably 10 or 11, he doesn't really understand why everyone's so upset in the town he lives in and why everything's so bad. Um, but he ends up sort of being the hero of the story and sort of saving the entire town kind of just by force of will of innocence. Like he's just sort of exploring and he's sort of a misfit and he ends up finding the Storm King um, who is the... Storm King is keeping the rain from the town and he ends up fighting the Storm King and winning, basically. So the it's interesting because the it, it's set in sort of a dark has sort of a dark overtone at first, mm -hmm. but it ends up being a really positive, sort of neat, optimistic message. Well, the book is definitely a little dark. Yeah. You know, it seems it's... like it might be for kind of older kids. <laughs> yeah, I was like, oh, sweet, children's theater. And then I read the book, and I was like, oh, well, my kid's too young. <laughs> yeah. Rabbits get slaughtered. That's too bad. That's too bad. So have you ever scored anything before as a band? No, no, this was a... Um, very ambitious first time. <laughs> so how did you guys approach this? Well, you know, the way, we, the way we mostly approach making music is really collaborative. We kind of get in a room and somebody has an idea and, and then we just start throwing out ideas and somebody says that's great and somebody says that's terrible and we just keep going until something's great. And um, that's kind of how the storm in the barn all came together. It's kind of crazy because... You know, five people aren't supposed to be able to do that together, but it's working out so far. Good. Well, and normally when people score a film, they actually have all of the film. You know, they're watching the film. It's timed perfectly. Right. But you guys are dealing with live actors. So well, how do you score that? Well, so we had the screenplay, and it had some musical direction in it. And then um, there was a meeting with the producer and the uh, playwright to talk about sort of this is the idea of this and this and this and this, in sort of vague terms, sometimes specific mood kind of terms, and then we just sort of run with it. And then we had a nice long workshop over the course of three or four days where we just kept running through it until we nailed it down. And at that point, some things got chopped completely and new things yeah. came up, and yeah. Concurrently, you guys uh, are also, you're working on uh, these records that you want to release on Record mm -hmm. Store Day. Right. And uh, your bio, your band bio talks about how um, you've sort of always wanted to be a backup band. So you're actually going to come back later and, uh, and one of the people who's on the upcoming EP, Sally Ford, is going gonna, is gonna to play a song. Yeah, we're really, really, looking really forward excited to that. about that. Yeah, well this song was absolutely beautiful. Black Prairie, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us.
You're listening to Livewire, the show that believes that variety is the spice of life. We also believe basmati is the rice of life, pepperoni is the slice of life, and a pacemaker is the device of life. You are free to disagree because this is America. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. Welcome to Talking Ball and Face and Fears with Sean McGrath, where Sean's love of baseball and his many irrational fears come together. Tonight on Talking Ball and Face and Fears, Sean attempts to interview baseball analyst Don Saracen while a rabbit sits in a cage nearby. Welcome to the show, Donald. Hey, what's up? Um, the Detroit Tigers got off to a really good start. Wow. Uh, huh. Yeah? Uh, um, what about the Tigers? Yeah, yeah. Um, the Tigers, they swept the Red Sox the opening weekend, right? So with the addition of Prince Fielder, uh, the Tigers, the team to beat in the American League, Oh, okay. It's it's got yellow teeth. I'm looking at it, and it's got yellow All right, teeth. Well, uh, I don't know the ta- why. The Tigers do look pretty good this season. Uh, Justin Verlander oh is expected god. to. Oh god! Oh god! It's looking at me. It just looked at me. Can you tell? Is it looking at me now? Is it Donald? Is it looking at me Sean, now? Sean, what? Okay. The, that rabbit? Yeah. I have no idea. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Now, the back half of the Tiger rotation is pretty shaky. Is the bullpen going to be forced to... Oh, I'm going to be sick. I'm going to be... Oh, okay, it moved. It moved. I'm going to be sick. Oh, Sean. That's got to be the cutest rabbit I've ever... Can I... Do you no. mind if I pet it? No, don't pet it. Don't touch it. Don't even look at it. Oh. No, no, no. It's, oh. it's, it's safe. Look, look at him. He's like a little Easter bunny. Oh, Easter bunny. Okay, okay. Uh, mm. Oh, okay. Hold it together, McGrath. Hold it together, just a little bit longer. Donald, okay. Yeah. Are the Tigers' chances turning like to Miguel Cabrera? Because I think that he's really going to be the linchpin of the season. Sean. <laughs> he's going to be the linchpin. Sean, are, are you all right? I told him I couldn't do this last week. We had Derek Jeter and the potentially expired milk, and I said, no, I don't want to do it. If they force me to do it, I can't do it. I can't do it. 
This has been another episode of Talking Ball and Facing Fears with Sean McGrath. Next time, Sean interviews Oakland A's shortstop Cliff Pennington while facing his fear of cotton balls, relaxed fit jeans, and the music of Jose Feliciano. Now back to Livewire. So, you know all those people who have successfully turned their blogs into books? Well, our next guest is one of those people. She began with a very funny blog about her weight loss exploits called Pound, which she turned into her first memoir in 2005, I Am Not the New Me. Since then, she's published essays in the New York Times Magazine, the Chicago Sun-Times, and a number of anthologies. She has also edited over 50 children's books, and she has even written a few of her own. Her most recent book, which was just released in paperback, is The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie, wherein she traces the pioneer journey of the Ingalls family from churning butter in her apartment to surviving a hailstorm in South Dakota. Please welcome author Wendy McClure to Livewire. Thank you. The little house books I read came from the public library, usually off the paperback racks, the Harper Trophy editions with the yellow borders and spines. I loved the way the list of titles had its own rhythm. Little house in the big woods, little house on the prairie, farmer boy, on the banks of Plum Creek, by the shores of Silver Lake, the long winter. Of course, I memorized them. Little town on the prairie, these happy golden years, the first four years, the words plotted along reliably like the feet of Indian ponies. And oh my God, I wanted to live in one room with my whole family <laughs> and have a pathetic corncob doll all my own. I wanted to wear a calico sunbonnet, or rather, I wanted to not wear a calico sunbonnet the way Laura did letting it hang down her back by its ties. I wanted to do chores because of those books. Carry water, churn butter, make head cheese. I wanted dead rabbits brought home for supper. I wanted to go out in the backyard and just, I don't know, grab stuff off trees or uproot things off the ground and bring it all inside in a basket and have my parents say, my land, what a harvest. A lot of what I learned about being a girl, I learned from Laura Ingalls. I discovered that it helps if you try to love your own brown hair as much as you love your paws. Though it helps to know that feeling bad about not having blonde curls is apparently a universal thing. <laughs> that even little girls who live in isolated Wisconsin cabins, which is as far as you can get from fashion magazines, can experience it. I also have, okay, this crazy theory that the scene where Laura gets leeches on her legs and on the banks of Plum Creek is a metaphorical preparation for getting your first period. So that when Laura finds it terrifying and gross at first, but quickly learns to deal with it, it brings us girls all one step closer to being able to handle, are you there, God, it's me, Margaret. <laughs> of course, you're welcome to disagree. 
And while I'm willing to accept many things as matters of interpretation, wherein your Laura Ingalls Wilder is different from mine, I'm holding my ground here. Laura is not a tomboy. I will not deny that Laura did some decidedly ungirly things in the books, especially in On the Banks of Plum Creek. I understand that haystacks were climbed and old crabs were taunted. I refuse to believe these things make Laura a tomboy. I will accept the TV Laura as a tomboy. She had a spunky demeanor and, like her TV dad, Michael Landon, an occasional tendency to throw punches. She had a string beanie awkwardness to her as she stomped around in her tight pigtails. Um, of course, in Melissa Gilbert's defense, I don't imagine that as round and dumpy as a little French horse is a type much in demand in Hollywood. <laughs> Whereas the Laura who lived in those yellow paperback book pages appeared in those Garth Williams illustrations so much more unabashedly feminine with her bare feet and the gently rippling skirt she lifted to romp through the grass on the cover of On the Banks of Plum Creek. I held that image in my mind constantly while growing up. In all its sensual freedom, it seemed to me the very essence of girlhood. I understand that Laura did more so-called boyish things because she was a pioneer girl. I love that Laura trapped fish with paw and rounded up oxen run amok because she had to. Or maybe I love that she had to and still got to be a girl. My earliest years were spent watching my older brother Steve's life and trying to decipher all the ways in which I could or could not follow his example. I was fascinated with his Cub Scout activities, but eventually figured out that there would be no Pinewood Derby for me. My parents never discouraged me from so-called boy things like sports and other pursuits, but I could intuit the way kids seemed to understand that my brother's world wasn't quite mine. I distinctly remember sitting in his room and flipping through one of his magazines, feeling profoundly bored and left out. Okay, so the magazine was boy's life, <laughs> but it still didn't seem fair. This is not to say I rejected girl things. In fact, I was obsessed with long hair and long dresses. The hair was really the sore point. Mine was cut short, and sometimes, especially when I wore my brother's hand-me-down clothes, strangers in restaurants would mistake me for a boy. I thank God and the 70s that maxi dresses were in style, <laughs> allowing me to own a floor-length pink gingham dress that I would have worn every day if given the chance. <laughs> But it being the 70s, I was also one of the first generations of girls to grow up hearing the message that we could be whatever we wanted. What did it mean then that I wanted to be both a Weebolo Scout and Superstar Barbie? <laughs> so much well-meaning children's programming, like Sesame Street and Free to Be You and Me, encouraged us to defy social rules we had yet to fully understand. And yet the pink and pretty trappings of conventional girliness called to us too. Years after I wore out that gingham dress, when I was in college, I had a job at a preschool and watched one of the four-year-old girls, whose hair was as short as mine had once been, race around the playground with a skirt on her head to simulate a wig. <laughs> Don't tell her to take it off, the teacher told me. She gets upset. The world of the Little House books was so much less confusing, not just because it was simpler, as plenty of people love to insist, but because it reconciled all the little contradictions of my modern girlhood. On the Banks of Plum Creek clicked with me especially, with its perfect combinations of pinafores and recklessness. Consider the illustration on page 31 of Plum Creek. 
where you will note how fabulous Laura looks as she pokes a badger with a stick. (laughs) Her style is casual yet feminine, perfect for precarious nature adventures. Being a girl sometimes just made more sense in Laura world than it did in real life. Boys are minor characters in the Little House books until Almanza Wilder comes onto the scene in the later books in the series. And even then, he plays second fiddle to those dreamy Morgan horses of his, as far as Laura is concerned. At worst, the boys in Laura world will hurl a few witless taunts, snipes, snipes, and are promptly told to shut up. At best, they might do something spectacularly stupid, like get themselves stung by a whole hive of yellow jackets. Remember Cousin Charlie in Little House in the Big Woods? Remember the illustration, page 209, in which the poor kid gets plastered with mud and wrapped up like a giant sad burrito while the other cousins look on with vague disgust? Notice how most of them are girls? Notice how they clearly know better. (laughs) It's yet another reason why Tomboy never sounded like the right word for Laura. The prairie where the Ingalls girls played was so empty of boys that it's hard to imagine that Laura would want to emulate them at all. Only once does Laura ever seem to be jealous when her little friend Clarence in the big woods, who has a fancy outfit and shiny copper-toed shoes, comes to visit. She loves his shoes, but as the book states, little girls didn't wear copper toes. Her one pang of boy envy, and it's about fashion. (laughs) I don't have a sister, but for a time while growing up, I had Laura Ingalls. Girlhood felt like an unknown territory, but I loved that Laura world was full of wide open spaces that express possibility. One frontier stood for another. Wendy's book is The Wilder Life, My Adventures in the Lost World of Little House on the Prairie. And now Livewire presents a hard look at life in the real Little House on the Prairie. I'm hungry, Paul. No food. I'm cold, too, Pa. We're gonna have to ride out the winter. What day is it? First of June. (laughs) That the woes again, Pa? I reckon. Ones that took your leg? I reckon. Paul? Yep. They coming back for your other leg? I reckon. Paul? Yeah, half pint. Wolf's gonna eat me too. Yep. That was Livewire's hard look at the real little house on the prairie.
It was Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson with sound effects by David Ian. Tonight's show is brought to you in part by Whole Foods Markets, celebrating Earth Month in Portland and Washington with their whole body product swap, where customers can trade in their chemically laden lotions, creams, soaps, vitamins, and powders for healthy Whole Foods Market private label items. It's all during April and May, which have traditionally been good months to be beautiful. Also June, July, August, September, October, November, December, January, February, and March. It's Trade in Your Toxins Month at Whole Foods Market. More information at WholeFoodsMarket.com. Our next guest started his career as a journalist, moving from Washington to Alaska to Virginia, working for newspapers and winning national honors like the H.L. Mencken Award and the Livingston Award. His first novel, The Highest Tide, was an international bestseller and was adapted for the stage by Book It Theater in Seattle. His most recent novel, Truth Like the Sun, is a thriller that sets its eye on the 1962 World's Fair in Seattle and was compared to both The Bonfire of the Vanities and the film Chinatown by Janet Maslin of the New York Times. Please welcome author Jim Lynch to Livewire. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hey, thank you. It's good to have you. So uh, your, your other books actually are, are a little bit different from this book, and so I, I, was, I was wondering why you, you wanted to, to write about the 1962 World Fair. Well, my other two books um, were very nature-oriented, and I, I wanted to write something that was very urban. And so Seattle's the city I know best, and so I decided uh, um, you know, what would be the best way to creatively portray and capture Seattle and make it readable as hell. And so what I, what I decided to do was, was focus on the 62 World's Fair because I just thought it was such a wonderful kind of transformative period in history for the city and the Northwest, really. Well, and I was hoping that you'd actually read a little bit to, just to give people sure. an idea of, of how, you, how you came into the book. Um, so I decided to start the book um, the night before the fair opens, and so we're up in the Space Needle, and everybody's up there kind of for the first time, taking a look at the city. And, and the, uh, getting the World's Fair to Seattle in 62 was, was really considered kind of a fluke, because that was back when World's Fairs were a big deal. So it's this little city that, that's in over its head, and they built this crazy tower, and this is the uh, opening scene, April 21st, 1962. This is when and where it begins, with all the dreamers, champagne drunk and stumbling on the head of the needle. Look back further all you want, but this renaissance starts right here when the dreamers got everyone to take one long gawk at this place. Look, just just look at this brash metropolis surrounded by postcard summits and all that boat-loving water. Up here in the dark, 500 feet above it all, downtown looks like it's on fire again. Though it's just showing off this time, flaunting cheap hydropower, everyone flipping on their lights to greet the world, all those bulbs straining to make the city look bigger than it actually is. Taste that salty air, smell the clam spit, where better to start afresh? A whole new way of living in a city of things to come. That's right, a city so short on history it's mostly all future anyway, so climb on board and go, go, go. 
The elevator doors glide open seven minutes before midnight, everyone spilling out, men dressed like penguins, women like peacocks, an older crowd, bloodshot and slack-jawed, up past bedtime, bumping into radiant waitresses in gold lame, passing out flutes of champagne. Roger Morgan, the grand exalted dreamer himself, grabs a glass, thanks the waitress, takes in the chaos. Dozens of people, and it sounds like hundreds, are already here, seeing the city for the first time from this height, shouting, crowding the windows, exclaiming, good God, at the spectacle of lights and water below, while others marvel at how the dining area spins around the elevators and kitchen just slowly enough to make you think you're losing your marbles. A busty woman returns from the bathroom and can't find her friends who've rotated 80 feet clockwise (laughs) until she hears them roaring at her confusion. A drink spills, a glass breaks, a man retches and blames it on the spinning. More shouts, more stampeding laughter. Roger parts a gaggle, turning more heads, so damn young, isn't he, into another flurry of handshakes and hugs from people who've already embraced him tonight, but they want more contact now that they're loaded and up in his space needle. Everybody wants his blessings, whether it's the etiquette committee urging local ladies to wear dresses during the fair, or the beautification committee telling school kids to keep those candy wrappers in their pockets. The fair is coming. Clean the streets and shine your shoes. The fair is coming. Thank you. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Livewire Radio. We're talking to Jim Lynch, the author of Truth Like the Sun. So that was our introduction to the protagonist of the book, who's Roger Morgan, and he's really the king of of this, this 1962 World's Fair. Right. Um, and he also, in the, in the book, he's supposedly had the idea for the Space Needle, wrote it down on a napkin. Didn't that actually happen? Right. There, there was a guy that was one of the uh, principals of the fair who went to uh, Stuttgart, Stuttgart, Germany, and he saw the big tower there, and he ate up on top of that town, and he came back to Seattle and said, we need a tower. And so... Uh, it was it was done really quickly, and uh, you know, and the, and the Space Needle was built in about a, you know, a little over a year, and for four million dollars or whatever it was. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it was fast. Well, and you spoke a little bit about the impact that the World's Fair had on Seattle, but what sort of long-term impact? Because it's really sort of it's it's revisited a lot during the course of the book. The long-term impact that the fair had. Well, the the World's Fair was all about predicting what the uh, what the future was going to be. So it was all about the 21st century, and so they were predicting that we would all have flying cars and houses that rotated to follow the sun, and all these things that were going to be these modern conveniences that didn't really pan out. But um, but it is kind of interesting that that Seattle became a futuristic city and a technology hub. Um, and so half of the book is in 1962, and the other half is in 2001, where Seattle kind of crashes with the dot-com crash. And so um, I kind of write about the party of 1962 and the hangover of 2001. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and Roger in 2001 is running for mayor. Right. Um, and you, are, you, you used to be a journalist. You're basing this on events that have actually happened. How did you approach writing the story as a journalist? Well, I, um, it, it's taken me a long time to want to put journalism into fiction because, uh, uh, for whatever reason, I always I wanted to stay away from it. But now that I have enough distance from it, it was actually fun to write about the sparring between reporter and politician, and and uh, and just how difficult it is to actually try to write about somebody and try to tell the public how much integrity he has and how decent or indecent he is, you know, in 50 column inches and do it accurately and fairly. And right. so I tried to get at that. 
Well, and uh, in 2001, uh, Helen Gulanos, is that how that's pronounced? Right. Uh, Helen, Helen Gulanos is the protagonist from 2001, and she's the reporter. As he's trying to run for mayor, she's really trying to write about him. Right. Um, was she really, because she was a journalist, was she sort of standing in for you in this book? A little bit? Well, no, she wasn't standing in for me, but she, she was kind of standing in. She, she worked well for me because I wanted somebody who, who wasn't uh, uh, enamored with Seattle. I, I liked having somebody who was coming in from out of town. And Seattleites, I mean, perhaps like people in Portland, but Seattleites always tend to be astonished if people don't immediately adore the city. Yeah. And so, uh, and so uh, I liked having her come in and be skeptical about Seattle, skeptical about the World's Fair. She had to write a 40th anniversary piece that was boring the hell out of her. And then she had to write about this, this guy, Roger Morgan, and she was trying to find out, you know, uh, is he solid or isn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and he, what's really appealing about him is that he seems uh, to not be able to lie. Um, but he's got a lot of skeletons. Right. Um, and it was interesting to read it, uh, to read about someone who was running for mayor and could not, you know, just had to be honest. And thinking of that now, would you think that, that a character like that would it survive in any kind of race for anything in 2012? Uh, I'm not quite sure. I, in, in some ways, since newspapers are shrinking and there's fewer reporters on the beat. Maybe you could get away with more now. I don't, I'm not yeah. sure. Um, but, uh, no, I, I just liked having somebody who was, who was as candid as he is and as, and as open as he is and, and as you know, amusing as he was. Um, and that usually means you're going to lose, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, and he also, he had a lot of conversations with famous people because there were a lot of famous people there. During the uh, fair. In, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So he had conversations with Edward R. Murrow, LBJ, Elvis. What was it like for you to have to put words into the mouths of these really famous people? Is it different? It was very fun. Yeah. Uh, because um, I just, I loved, you know, creating conversations with LBJ and, and Elvis and so on. And I listened to recordings of them in that time frame. And so I suddenly felt comfortable throwing them into action. And I haven't heard anything from their relatives yet. So it's <laughs> good. So good, yeah. Also, there's uh, back in, in, at the time of the scandal, there was a police scandal, a police payoff scandal right. that, that also really happened in Seattle back then. And I wondered as I read it, did you have the story in your head when you started, or did you allow your research about the time to really help guide what, the story that you told? Well, um, all, all my novels are a combination of research and imagination, and, and I just was fascinated that, that Seattle was um, as dirty as it was during the 60s. So you're, you're throwing this really wholesome, cheery fair about what the, what the bright future is going to be, and meanwhile, you, you know, your gambling has gone wild in downtown and the cops are uh, taking bribes. And I think it was similar in Portland during that time frame. The, the 60s were a little um, uh, wonderfully out of control. Yeah. Know, <laughs> um, but no, I just, I liked trying to compact it in, and uh, add to the drama using that too. Moving forward, you had your, what you called your nature boy books. Right. Um, and now you've, you've written this urban novel. So what do you feel like is next for you? Well, I guess I'm going rural again because I've got a um, novel that I'm working on about a, a family obsessed with sailing, and it'd be set on Puget Sound. But there's also a um, bizarre online dating streak in there that I... <laughs> of course, that I, in yeah. every sailing story. <laughs> Moby Dick had an online aspect to it, I think. 
Well, I've just got, I've got so many uh, middle-aged divorced friends who are having online dating comedies on a regular basis. Right. I've, I've got to do something with the material. So, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, well, this is a, a wonderful book. The book is Truth Like the Sun. The author is Jim Lynch. Thank you so much for Thank joining you us. Thank you very much. And now, Whole Foods Market presents Crunch This. This month, Whole Foods features something you should never crunch raw, the artichoke. Welcome to the show, artichoke. It's nice to be here, or whatever. Wow, it, it sounds like you're from California. I totally am. California is the eighth largest growing region in the world, but most artichokes these days are from Italy. I didn't, I didn't know that. Yeah, Italians love us so much. There are these annual festivals, but my mom won't let me go because she's like, I don't want you to end up in some putanesca. She's super hella bummer, you know? Right. Well, how would she rather you were prepared? Uh, she's pretty traditional. I'm straight up steamed with lemon butter. But I'm like, Mom, let me live up to my full potential as a perennial thistle. Hot crab and artichoke dip. Or I could rock a pasta salad. Or I'd be happy to be up in someone's grill. Although I'm not allowed to smoke, so that might get complicated. It, you know, it all sounds delicious. So. Well, I'd love to talk more, but I have to motor. Where are you off to? I'm on auditioning for a part in an artichoke spinach lasagna? Don't tell my mom. I'm going to get my florets trimmed. Well, good luck and thanks for joining us. That was an artichoke. And you can find her and her friends, the globe, the baby, purple, red, and long-stemmed at Whole Foods Markets. Feed your brain and find delicious artichoke recipes at WholeFoodsMarket.com. And now it's time for some teeny tiny tales, some Lilliputian literature. It's time for Livewire's Flash Fiction. Tonight, our audience has been given the Herculean task of writing an entire story in just six words, based on the prompt, My Life as a Pioneer. Members of Faces for Radio Theater have their top picks, and will now read them with the help of fill-in band leader and alleged philatelist Jim Brunberg. And now, flash fiction. Denny writes... I invented fourth meal. You're welcome. <laughs> Michelle writes, Hate these freaking bonnets. Where's REI? <laughs> Kathy writes, Bought Apple stock in 1988. Wham! <laughs> Bill writes, Wife changed hair color. I noticed. <laughs> Emma writes, dated the nerd. Smartest move yet. Scotty writes, buffalo chip fire. Not great s'mores. Excellent job, audience, on tonight's Flash Fiction. Flash fiction.
section was brought to you tonight, as always, by New Belgium Brewing Company, this month featuring their Shift Pale Lager, a beer as a reward for a job well done, crafted by New Belgium's employee owners for an end-of-shift beer that you can have at the end of any shift, work or PlayStation or napping. The list is endless. Thanks, New Belgium. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Livewire. And now with a song from their Singers Volume 1 Portland EP, please welcome Black Prairie with special guest Sally Ford of Sally Ford and the Sound Outside.
Black Prairie and Sally Ford. And now, as promised, the man who has been writing this entire hour while we've been hanging out up here. To sum it all up for us, please welcome poet Scott Poole. What I Learned Tonight by Scott Poole. I learned tonight that I think if Laura Ingalls Wilder was around now, she'd be kind of a bewildered hipster in a flower print dress. I don't think she could handle all these soft, riddling, riddled kids of today. I can just see Laura getting sick of watching MTV and heading down to the tattoo parlor. Yes, because they still call it a parlor. She'd feel more homey there to get a tattoo of Pa chopping the head off a rabbit in front of a rickety barn sitting on a black prairie awash in flames. That sounds so cool. I want a tattoo of Laura Ingalls getting a tattoo of Pa chopping the head off a rabbit in front of a black prairie awash in flames. Show it to my family and have them say, my, what a harvest. <laughs> Take that, Nellie Olson. Everyone's dress is too short now. You'll never keep up with all this bullying. You are hereby cursed to be a greeter at Walmart for 50 years. <laughs> Instead of hanging out at the 7-Eleven, Laura would probably head for the last four-by-four four patch of forest left behind the trailer park, painting pictures on rotten plywood with the ink from broken Bic pens of haggard skeletal Easter bunnies stuck in rusty cages sitting on endless plains of grayscale jelly beans. Needless to say, she would probably be a bit misunderstood in our century. Carrying a hatchet into jack-in-the-box tends to be a bit misunderstood. <laughs> Even if you carry a clutch of firewood with you, it doesn't make people feel any better about the hatchet. When you send back the crispy chicken sandwich and instead flop a freshly broken neck chicken on the counter and then chop the head off, spraying blood onto the little plastic device you punch your four-character pin into and say, you reckon you can fry me up this? <laughs> if Laura Ingalls Wilder saw the Space Needle, I think she'd like it because she'd be less likely to be mauled and killed by a coyote there. But at the same time, she would feel the architecture overreaching and out of touch, symbol of the future that seems anachronistic to the current cultural and technological trends. Then she just spit tobacco juice over the side and count the seconds till it hit. Thank you. Scott Poole, everybody. That's our show for tonight. Thank you so much for listening. Our thanks to our guests tonight, Wendy McClure, Jim Lynch, Black Prairie, and Sally Ford. The Mutton Chops are Jim Brunberg, Dave Jorgensen, and Paul Brainerd, now featuring their new record of 99 songs of 30 seconds or less at mchops.com. Tonight's show is made possible in part by our sponsors, New Belgium Brewing Company, Whole Foods Market, and Burgerville, featuring Burgerville Radio. 
featuring music from Northwest musicians in all their restaurants. Additional funding provided by the Regional Arts and Culture Council and Work for Art, the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation, and listeners like you fine people. Hotel accommodations generously provided by the Hotel Deluxe. Our executive producer is Robin Tenenbaum. The show is produced by Courtney Hommeister and Jim Brunberg. The faces for Radio Theater are writers Sean McGrath and Courtney Hommeister, performers Andrew Harris and Trisha Ferguson, director Jason Rouse, and master of sound David Ian. Additional show writers are Jason Rouse and house poet Scott Poole, with guest writer Tynan DeLong. Our technical director is Jonathan Newsom with house sound by Graham Nystrom. Stage management by Drew Flint, and thank you to Rose City Sound. Show theme by Courtney Vondrelli and Ralph Huntley. Our show photographer is Jenny Baker. Livewire was created by Kate Sokoloff and Robin Tenenbaum. For more information about Livewire or to subscribe to our podcast, visit livewireradio.org. Dear Livewire, when we first met, I was really shy. I had no idea we'd spend so much time together or that you'd be one to fill my heart with, with joy and make me want to be a better person. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't know you were here. I was busy reading a review from one of our many, many rapturously smitten listeners. Oh, wait, actually, no, sorry. This is from Elena. Anyway, the point is, uh, it would be really helpful if you wanted to leave us a review. Feel free to say really nice things about us, and uh, we'll even read them now and then on the show. So you might hear your review of Livewire read on the program itself. Uh, reviews help other people hear about the show, and then we can keep doing this for a long, long time because we love having this job. Uh, thank you so much. If you've left a review, and if you're about to leave a review, you can go ahead and do it right where you get the podcast. 